Well, this morning, I, I want to uh, actually read, we're going to read something together and then kind of go off of that. But what I, uh, what I read was actually a post on Facebook. And when I, when I read it, I, it was just profound to me. And I felt like the Lord was uh, telling me to share it. So we're going to read that together this morning. And the title of uh, the message today is just the question that will change your life. And it comes from, like I said, this post that I came across that one of the, the wives of one of my mentors back in Fort Worth, Wendy, Wendy Dermont, posted it. And, and uh, like I said, it, it struck my heart. So this is, uh, the post was by a guy named David Reiser, who I don't really know who he is, but uh, he's apparently he's a minister and teaches in a ministry school. But if you just want to read along with me, this is what his post said. He said, a number of years ago, I had the privilege of teaching at a school of ministry. My students were hungry for God and I was constantly searching for ways to challenge them to fall more in love with Jesus and to become voices for revival in the church. I came across a quote attributed to the, most often to Reverend Sam Pascoe. It is a short version of the history of Christianity and it goes like this. You can't read it, just listen to me. Christianity started in Israel as a fellowship. It moved to Greece and became a philosophy. It moved to Italy and became an institution. It moved to Europe and became a culture and it came to America and became an enterprise. Some of the students were only 18 or 19 years old and I wanted them to understand and appreciate the importance of the last line. So I clarified it by adding an enter enterprise that's a business. After a few moments, Martha, the youngest student in the class, raised her hand. I could not imagine what her question might be. I thought the little vignette of self was self-explanatory and that I had performed it brilliantly. Nevertheless, I acknowledged Martha's raised hand. Yes, Martha. She asked such a simple question. A business? But isn't it supposed to be a body? I could not envision where this line of questioning was going, and the only response I could think of was, yes. She continued, but when a body becomes a business, isn't that a prostitute? The room went dead silent. For several seconds, no one moved or spoke. We were stunned. <laughs> afraid to make a sound because the presence of God had flooded into the room and we knew we were on holy ground. God had taken over the class. Martha's question changed my life. For six months, I thought about her question at least once every day. When a body becomes a business, isn't that a prostitute? There is only one answer to her question. The answer is yes. The American church tragically is heavily populated by people who do not love God. How can we love him? We don't even know him. I mean, really know him. I stand by my statement that I believe that most American Christians do not know God 
much less love him. The root of this condition originates in how we came to God. Most of us came to him because of what we were told he would do for us. We were promised that he would bless us in life and take us to heaven after death. We married him for his money, and we don't care if he lives or dies as long as we can get his stuff. We have made the kingdom of God into a business, merchandising his anointing. This should not be. We are commanded to love God with all of our heart, to deny ourselves, lay down our lives for his sake and the gospel. We're called to be the bride of Christ. That's pretty intimate stuff. We're supposed to be his lovers. How can we love someone we don't even know? And if we do not know someone, is that a guarantee that we truly love them? Are we lovers or prostitutes? I was pondering Martha's question again one day and considered the question, what's the difference between a lover and a prostitute? I realized that both do many of the same things, but a lover does what she does because she loves. A prostitute pretends to love, but only as long as you pay. Then I asked the question, what would happen if God stopped paying me? For the next several months, I allowed God to search me to uncover my motives for loving and serving him. Was I really a true lover of God? What would happen if he stopped blessing me? What if he never did another thing for me? Would I still love him? Please understand, I believe in the promises and blessings of God. The issue here is not whether God blesses his children. The issue is the condition of my heart. Why do I serve him? Are his blessings in my life the gifts of a loving father? Or are they a wage that I've earned or a bribe or payment to love him? Do I love God without any conditions? It took several months to work through these questions. Even now I wonder if my desire to love God is always matched by my attitude and behavior. I still catch myself being disappointed with God and angry that he has not met some perceived need in my life. I suspect this is something which is never fully resolved, but I want more than anything else to be a true lover of God. And so that question, are we lovers or are we, are we prostitutes? Are we, are we in relationship with God for what he can do for us? You know, as, as a husband, it says that we're to love our wives as Christ loves the church and that he laid his, himself down for the church. And so <clears throat> the way I always check myself in my marriage is if, you know, there's definitely times where I seek my, my own interests and I have in my, I'm not perfect and I, I sin and, uh, you know, against my family and, and, and Jessica, so to speak, where I, and it's mostly when I'm just selfish. And so when I, whenever I'm, the Lord's correcting me, it's usually because I've, I've, I've fallen out of that place of denying myself and being willing to die first because a husband, you know, Christ died for the church first and then he asked the church to die for him. So the role of a husband is you, you get to be the first one that dies. 
and the wife gets to be second. <laughs> and that's just kind of the way God ordered things, and that's the way I found it works best, in, at least in my marriage and, and the ones that we've counseled people in, in the sense of where you, de- you deny yourself and you take up your cross. And it doesn't mean you don't talk about needs and, and things like that, but you're, you're, seek, you're, you're examining your heart and, and looking to serve first is, is your motive. And so you have, um, and that's the, the example that the Lord gave us. And so you go to Hosea chapter four, verses 10 through 13. And if you're familiar with Hosea, you know that he was a prophet sent to Israel. And many times God asked the prophets to live out their message. So they, they would symbolically do things to, that were not just, they didn't just preach a message, but the God would do things in their life where they were the message. And so even Ezekiel, he laid on his side for 40 days in intercession as a, as a way of laying in the intercession. He, he, uh, and then you had Jeremiah, he built like a little model of Jerusalem and then like destroyed it. Like, this is what's going to happen. And you had Isaiah ran around apparently butt naked for two years as a sign of Israel's nakedness and their shame and shame apart from God. And you go to Hosea and Hosea, God tells him to marry a prostitute, not once, but twice as a sign to Israel is like this is how you are to me, your husband. And so I was reading through Hosea and I just, I picked a, a couple of passages I just felt related to this, this uh, what I just read. And so Hosea chapter four, verse 10 through 13 says, they will eat, but not have enough. They will play their harlot, but not increase because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Harlotry, wine and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol and their diviner's wine informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. And so this harlotry wine and, and new wine, it says, takes away the understanding. So when, when we start veering away from God being first in our life, him, him being our first love, we actually start, we can start losing understanding. And how many of y'all know people who were on fire for God at one point and they took a, a small turn somewhere and now they're not, they're either not on fire or they actually have denied God that they said they were wrong from the beginning. Okay. So they've lost understanding, right? Because of harlotry, because of, and, and wine in the Bible can oftentimes represent, especially like in Song of Song, it says your love is, is better than wine. And so what it's talking about is the wine of the world, the, the wine that the world offers you. Do you, you want to get drunk on this 
and like drown out reality and kind of numb yourself through life as, as Jack Frost would say, do you want to you live in Num Numville? And so, and so if you want to do that, then you, you take of the world's wine, you take of all the things that the world has to offer to drown out your heart and the reality of what's going on in your heart. And just not even consider death that seriously. I've talked to you about the gospel and about the Lord and their attitude towards death and eternal things of eternity are very laissez-faire. They're very like, yeah, I mean, whatever. I mean, whatever. I'm like, dude, it's like serious consequences. And so, but, it, but you don't have understanding when you're drunk on the things of the world. And so you go down and it says, they sat under the, the oak, the poplar, and the terebinth because their shade is pleasant. And so comfort and pleasure in, in the church has been prioritized over truth and sacrifice. And, and we're going to pray at the end because we're, this isn't like, hey, let's point out everything that's wrong with the American church. We're like, we want to, some of this is like, we're going to examine our own hearts and then we're going to pray and intercede for the, for the body of Christ because these are, we have brothers and sisters who are on fire for the Lord and we have brothers and sisters who may be, they may be veering off and they need to come and they need to be, have understanding again. But we, we've forgotten to take up a cross and follow Jesus wherever that road may lead. And so last, last week coaching basketball was a heck of a week. Had lots of different things happen. Had like stuff with parents. I had stuff with prayer players, multiple players where you're having to have meetings and you're talking and, and then uh, you just get... You're dealing with all these things outside of the actual just playing the game. I'm also pastoring the church and I'm also have my other job, my training job. And so last week I was in the I was in the car, I was like, Lord, I don't really need this. You know, but I know I'm obeying the Lord in, in, in this season and coaching basketball. I know it because he he really gave me confidence in it by giving me multiple words. I know it's the Lord. But there's a cross to following, to obeying the Lord. So like last week, up until this point, the cross had been my time. Like just, just being busy. And last week, I ran into a bigger cross that that was making me wonder if I had made the right decision. And you're going to have those times when you're following the Lord. You're like, did I make the right decision? Because this is hard. And this, frankly, I don't need this. Like, you know, because I was comfortable. But now I'm uncomfortable. And I'm obeying you, Lord. Was that your plan to make me uncomfortable? And he's like, yes, I'm conforming you. I'm molding you. I'm the potter. You're the clay. I'm conforming you to the image of God. And so that's not comfortable. You're not staying the same. And so right here it says, because their state is pleasant, because we prioritize comfort and pleasure, then we can abort what God has, where he wants us. 
And sometimes we may confuse, wait, I'm not, this is hard. This can't be God. No, sometimes it's like the, the sign that it is God. It's the sign that it is God. How many of you have kids and it's been hard? You wouldn't say they're not from the Lord, would you? Right? So why do we do that in other areas of our life? When the moment it gets hard, we're like, this can't be God. This is warfare. No, it's the cross. It's the cross. And the cross is an instrument of pain. And I'm telling you guys, we endure the cross right now in this age for rewards that far outweigh this this pain and the suffering, as Paul says. It's a short time that we actually get to take up our cross. And so are we prepared to love Jesus if comfort and pleasure are stripped away? And these are little tests, guys. You know, the ultimate test, we have brothers and sisters in Nigeria being martyred for their faith. They're being slaughtered by Islamic extremists. But it's not in the news. What about those brothers and sisters? They probably started off with very little and what very little they've had has been taken away. They're suffering loss. But I guarantee you, when we were on the other side of heaven, they're going to be some of the richest people. John chapter 12 says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. So do you hate your life? Meaning, are you willing to surrender your life? Are you willing to lay things down? If God told you to sell everything you have and go to your least favorite country in the world, (laughs) would you be willing to do that? Or if he told you to do the thing you you didn't want to do. And and I've always joked around, don't ever say, never say never with the Lord. Because I said I'll never be a youth pastor and I'll never be a church planner. Look what happened. Now now I've said a few times jokingly to the Lord, like, Lord, I'm never going to be a millionaire. (laughs) So, but are we willing, do we, because sometimes what the Lord asks you to do means that you, even as it pertains to money, because in Hosea, the context is that they were, Israel was rich. They were, they were bountiful, like they were a prospering nation. Sounds like much like America. And so it's like the, the question is, is, uh, can we give, can we give those things up? And even the things of what I've heard said before is like, sometimes you lay down even like your earning potential. Especially I've heard pastors say that before. It's like they could, there, I, I, there's a guy uh, named John Harrigan who's brilliant, brilliant theologian. He's like, yeah, man, my buddy in seminary, we, uh, we graduated together, top of our class. 
He says, I'm in the mission field in Egypt, living paycheck to paycheck off of, you know, donations. He's second in command at J.B. Hunt. And he's like, there's just, and he's like, and my struggle is, is dealing with that sometimes. He's like, I'm, he's like, you know, I'm a pretty smart guy. He's like, I know I could do what he's doing. But that's not what God's called me to do. And, and my cross is like, I'm, I, have, I have to trust God month to month for provision while my buddy is prospering abundantly. I did say his buddy supports him financially, which is good on his, on his buddy. So we go to Hosea 6, chapter, I mean, verses 1 through 6. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, for his going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I've hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So... As a coach, even this year, you know, I, I had to do, do this 25 years, you know, 23 years ago as a coach and kind of forgotten about it. But a lot of your job as a coach is holding the players accountable. And that was a lot of what last week was about, just having uncomfortable conversations, holding people accountable to the standard and the culture that you want. And... Uh, <clears throat> I remember uh, years ago, we, uh, we had to address someone in the church at that time about some issues that, they, that were going on in their life and we had to confront them. And this, I was at the house praying before this, this confrontation and uh, the Lord, he brought it to mind um, the passage in Joshua where they where they actually stoned Achan because Achan had taken things under the ban that were forbidden and a plague broke out in the camp people were dying and there's and God said there's sin in the camp and so Joshua found out it was Achan and they stoned Achan which was severe discipline but as the Lord, so I was reading that, and Joshua, when he called out Achan, he said, Achan, my son, tell me what you have done. And Achan confessed. And I, it caught me that Joshua called Achan, who was not his son, my son. And the Lord told me, before I went to this conversation with this person, he said, Disciplining them is the most fatherly thing you can do for them right now. Even though it's going to hurt. When I'm coaching these kids and I, and I confront them on when they don't hold the culture, they don't hold the standard. It's the most fatherly thing I can do for them. 
I would love to be able just to joke around, be nice. That would be, that would be the great, the, the awesome thing to do and the funnest thing to do. But God in our lives, it's just like this Hosea passage. He's like, he's torn us, but he's going to heal us. He wounded us, but he's going to bandage us. This, the discipline of the Lord, as Hebrews 12 talks about, is the loving kindness of God. He doesn't intend to keep us that way. He wants us to be healed. He wants us to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to look like Jesus. And, and much of the church, we, we're just, we don't, when you love something, you're willing to conform. You're willing to change. You're willing to lay your life down, right? That's what love is. You're, you're willing to sacrifice. And it says, let us press on and know the Lord. Because his going forth is certain as the dawn will come to us like the rain. And so the Lord assures us of his presence, that he assures us of making things right when we can submit to his ways, when we can submit to the process of being conformed to his image. But a lot of, but we do have a choice in that. We cannot submit to it, we can abort the process, or we can continually on a daily basis submit our lives to it. Hosea chapter seven, woe to them for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. They turn away from me. They assemble for the sake of grain and new wine. They assemble for prosperity. God is not angry at money. So I don't, I'm not saying that God doesn't matter. It doesn't, if you're a billionaire and God's first, doesn't matter. <laughs> you could be, have $10 to your name and God be second and that matters to God. So the issue is the heart, but God, but one of the, but the, ten, the chief competitor with your love for God is what Jesus said. You cannot love God and mammon. You cannot serve two masters because, and I asked the Lord this question in Texas when we lived there and we weren't uh, very rich. I was like, why do you t talk about money so much? And he said, because it's my chief competitor. He, he says, I want to be your provider. And so although I've trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn, but not upward. They are like a deceitful bow. So imagine shooting a bow and arrow. You got a deer lined up in the crosshairs and it just falls five feet in front of you. And it looks beautiful. It's a beautiful bow. How disappointed you'd be. He's like, I had it right there. I mean, that's, and that's like the, the imagery that God's using of their words. They look beautiful. They look really good. They look like they're going to do what they say they're going to do. And then bam, they don't do what they say they're going to do. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made to other gods. The richer his land, 
the better he made the sacred pillars. So it just kept feeding that lust for more. Their heart is faithless, now they bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Surely now they will say, we have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? They speak mere words. With worthless oaths they make covenants, and judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. How many of y'all have had God break down your sacred pillars? The things that you thought were dear to you, the, you, the things that you held that brought you security and safety. The Lord is, he is, he is a jealous God. He is a jealous God. He, he wants to be the only one, your only lover. And so for us this morning, what I want us to do is maybe just break up into two groups here, like one side and another side. But I just want us to spend some time praying and, and hear the prayer points that we would repent on behalf of the body of Christ in the West for a spirit of harlotry, as Hosea puts it, for pretending to love God, but only if he pays. To examine ourselves to see if we're serving mammon over God. To ask the Lord to give us understanding that the harlotry, that the, that the harlotry has taken away, as I mentioned. That the body of Christ would cry out to God from their heart, that we will not be a deceitful bow, but will be sincere. And that the Holy Spirit would give us the gift of tears. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 1 says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Translate that for us. Oh, that we would have godly sorrow for the body of Christ. And so you have, like I said, this, this chief competition of, of mammon and, and riches and money competing with God. Why do men seek riches? Why, why, do, why is that such a lure to us as men and women? I, and I, I believe at least part of the answer is, is because we were born in Eden. In a sense, that's what we were born for. We're born for Eden. Not born in Eden, but born for Eden. All of our needs were met. We're in the presence of God. There is no pain. There is no sorrow. There is no sign. What has Jesus come to restore? Eden life. That's what the new Jerusalem, that's what the millennial kingdom will be. He's restoring. He's called, that's why he's called the second Adam. That's one of his names. It's to restore what was lost. And so we were created for that world. And in this life, we experience train, pain, trauma, sorrow, sighing. And so men, because we weren't born for that, we don't necessarily even know how to handle that apart from God. We seek these riches that bring us comforts and pleasures. It's, it's what it provides for us. It's the, to drown out the sorrow, to drown out the sighing, to dry, drown out the weariness of this world. Okay. But in Jesus, we have access 
to the Lord. We have access to his presence. We have access to righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so we can give men, we can be walking in the garden with God. Not to its ultimate fullness, but in a measure that people will see that man walks with Jesus. That woman walks with Jesus. There's something different about them. They're living from another world. And that's why Colossians 3 says, set your mind on things above, not things that are below. But set but renew your mind, set your mind on things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. So I want us just to break up into groups. We'll have this side and this side just to make it simple. And we'll spend about 10 minutes praying into these points. And uh, uh, where's Luke, if we just get some um, instrumental music. But let, let's pray into this and then.